You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. This episode of the podcast is dedicated to the memory of my grandpa, Staff Sergeant Alan Birdie, who served as a combat infantryman in the United States Army during World War II, European Theater of Operations. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 45 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As promised, this will be the first of several episodes that we'll use to look at the three combat arms in which Civil War soldiers served, the infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Right. Because although we've already started in on the actual battles, we thought this would be a good time to hit the pause button, so to speak, and take a look at how the war was fought by the Union and Confederate soldiers. And so we're going to take some time to focus in on how the infantrymen, cavalrymen, and artillerymen of both sides fought the war. And just so you know, we'll also do an episode in the near future that looks at why the soldiers fought. In that episode, we'll look at what motivated Northern soldiers to enlist and fight for the Union, and we'll look at what motivated Southern soldiers to enlist and fight for the Confederacy. But but we wanted to treat why they fought as a separate topic. So like Rich said, right now we're going to look at how the soldiers of both sides fought the war. To start off, let's throw some numbers at you because you may want to know that some 3 million Americans took up arms during the four years of the Civil War, with Union armies holding a more than 2 to 1 advantage in numbers over their Confederate opponents. In April 1861, when the first shots of the war were fired at Fort Sumter, the United States Army stood at a total strength of just over 16,000 officers and men. And this number was slightly depleted when some 300 officers, almost a third of the whole number, resigned to join the Confederacy. But few, literally just a handful, of enlisted men left the ranks. Authorized in May 1861 to increase its strength to a bit over 22,000, the U.S. regular army remained a separate service throughout the Civil War. Its units, which were assigned to various Union armies, were distinguished by the designation United States. For example, the 13th United States Infantry. But as we've said before, the overwhelming majority of the over 2 million men who served in Union armies served in the Volunteer Army, consisting of regiments raised by the individual northern states. So volunteer regiment designations included the name of the state in which the unit had mustered, for example, the 20th Maine or the 7th Indiana. 
President Lincoln's call on April 15, 1861, for 75,000 men to serve for 90 days was quickly followed by a call for 42,000 army volunteers to serve for three years, unless discharged sooner. And then after the Union defeat at First Manassas in July, Lincoln signed two bills authorizing the enlistment of one million additional men for three years. Statistics for the Union armies show that it was a young man's war, with 18-year-olds making up the largest single group at enlistment, and 98.5% of soldiers following, falling between the ages of 18 and 45. The average Yankee recruit was a 25-year-old farmer who stood five feet eight and a half inches tall, weighed 143 pounds, and had dark hair and blue eyes. Following the creation of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson Davis's plan was to establish a Southern Army that would copy the organization of the United States Army as it had existed during the Mexican War. His intention was to establish a relatively small standing army, about fifteen thousand professional officers and enlisted men, who, after the war with the North, would serve as the Army of the Confederate States of America. But to meet the demands of the immediate crisis, the Provisional Army of the Confederate States was created by legislation passed on February twenty-eighth, eighteen sixty-one. Because the fledgling nation was at war almost from the start, and troops had to be raised quickly, virtually all new Confederate soldiers mustered into Provisional Army units. And just so we're clear, but the Confederate Provisional Army was equivalent to the U.S. Volunteer Army. Well, anyway, in early March 1861, the Confederate Congress authorized Jefferson Davis to raise a maximum of 100,000 volunteers for 12 months' service. And then in May, raising 400,000 additional men was authorized, but the term of service was changed to three years or the duration of the war. And in reality, Southern volunteers and conscripts knew that their military service would only end with the war. But that would not be true of those serving in the Confederate regular army. Had the Confederacy still existed at the war's end. They would have been required to serve their full terms of service, however long past the war's end that might have extended, and this fact considerably reduced the appeal of regular army service for many Southerners, and it's one of the major reasons that no more than a thousand enlisted men and seven hundred and fifty officers and cadets were ever sworn into the Confederate regular army. Since Confederate forces in the field generally kept poor records, and most of those were lost in the fires that devastated Richmond at the end of the war, cumulative statistics for the Confederacy are pretty much lacking altogether. But it's safe to say that if farmers made up forty-eight percent of federal armies, then the South, lacking the industrial base of the North, would have fielded an even higher percentage of soldiers who were farmers. And then many more federal soldiers than Confederates were foreign-born, mostly Germans and Irish, who had settled in cities such as New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and St. Louis. But nevertheless, we can assume that the typical Confederate soldier was, statistically speaking, much the same as his Yankee counterpart. Again, because most of the records were destroyed, it's a source of some disagreement as to how many men served in Confederate armies over the course of the Civil War. But it's generally thought to be nearly one million. 
And if it's accepted that nearly one million white Southern men would serve in the Confederate armed forces over the four years of the war, it's a staggering figure that represented 80% of the South's military pool, that is, white males between the ages of 18 and 45. Of course, that incredibly high level of mobilization of white men was only possible because of the South's dependence upon slave labor. Anyway, by contrast, the North would only mobilize 30% of its total military pool. But to go along with the South's high level of mobilization was also the terrible price and lives lost that they paid for that policy, because fully one quarter of the white men of military age in the Confederacy lost their lives during the Civil War. That's an astounding, heartbreaking statistic. So let me say that again. One quarter of the white men of military age in the Confederacy lost their lives during the Civil War. With both the North and South, the Civil War mobilized human resources on a scale unmatched in American history by any other event, except perhaps World War II. And for actual combat duty, the Union and Confederacy mustered a considerably larger proportion of American manpower than did World War II. For most of the men who served in the opposing armies, the Civil War was the defining experience of their lives. Even if they escaped without physical scars, the experience of war had touched their hearts with fire. In 1884, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., a Civil War veteran and future Supreme Court Justice, gave a speech at a Memorial Day observance. And in that speech he said, The generation that carried on the war has been set apart by its experience. Through our great good fortune, in our youth our hearts were touched with fire. It was given to us to learn at the outset that life is a profound and passionate thing. Such hearts, ah me, how many, were stilled twenty years ago, and to us who remain behind is left this day of memories. Every year, in the full tide of spring, at the height of the symphony of flowers and love and life, there comes a pause, and through the silence we hear the lonely pipe of death. Year after year, lovers wandering under apple trees and through the clover and deep grass are surprised with sudden tears as they see black-veiled figures stealing through the morning to a soldier's grave. Year after year, the comrades of the dead follow, with public honor, procession, and commemorative flags and funeral march. Honor and grief from us who stand almost alone and have seen the best and noblest of our generation pass away. We're going to begin our discussion of the combat arms of the Civil War by talking about the infantry because the Civil War was primarily an infantryman's war. Artillery and cavalry played their part, to be sure, but only infantry can take and hold ground for any length of time. That's the infantryman's job. During the Civil War, as they were by far the most numerous component of both armies, it was the infantry that inflicted and received the great majority of casualties. During the Civil War, the object of the fighting in every significant battle was for the infantry to close with the enemy, 
drive him from his position, and hopefully destroy him as a fighting force. War means fighting, and fighting means killing. And so in the first months of the war, both sides got down to the grim business of teaching the soldiers' trade to the masses of volunteers that flocked to the colors. They give us drill for breakfast, drill for dinner, drill for supper, and roll call for sleep at night. It is enough to take the enthusiasm out of any young man to wait for two or three months cooped up in some small campground, fed on the coarsest food, and drilled to death. Corporal Cornelius Moore, 57th New York. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. The 18-year-old Moore went on to declare himself, quote, sick and tired of the monotony of the life we are leading, end quote, and professed his impatience, quote, to be about the business for which I left home and friends, end quote. Moore's frustration with the realities of soldiering was by no means unique. At the start of the Civil War, many, perhaps most, of the eager young men who enlisted, full of giddy desire to fight the enemy, quickly discovered that the grim reality of army life did not match their expectations. For most, introduction to discipline and drill was their painful wake-up call to the fact that military life was not going to simply be some grand, fun adventure. The first task of the armies on both sides was to persuade volunteers to embrace the military way of doing things. There's the old saying that there's three ways to do something, the right way, the wrong way, and the army way. Ultimately, the purpose of discipline and drill and unquestioning obedience to orders was to prepare a soldier to perform his duties successfully during the chaos of battle. But in 1861, many a volunteer, 
who considered himself a civilian, only temporarily in uniform, many a volunteer looked upon drill as foolishness and accepted army discipline grudgingly. In the South, many early volunteers happily accepted the rank of private, considering it a matter of honor, but they often resented taking orders, especially from men who would be their social inferiors in civilian life. Orders from such officers were seen as impertinences, as putting on airs. As a result of perceived slights to honor, in Confederate armies early in the war, there were fist fights and even duels between enlisted men and officers. In northern armies, too, relations between officers and enlisted men were often strained. 27-year-old Charles Hayden, serving in a Michigan regiment, wrote in his journal, quote, Many of the men seem to think they should never be spoken to unless the remarks are prefaced by some words of deferential politeness. Will the gentleman who comprised the first platoon have the kindness to march forward? End quote. Much of this friction between the rank and file and those designated to command them was due to the fact that in most volunteer units, in both armies, men were elected by their comrades to their rank. Elisha Hunt Rhodes, 19, from Rhode Island, recalled, quote, I was elected first sergeant, much to my surprise. Just what a first sergeant's duty might be, I had no idea, end quote. While a fine practice in pre-war militia units, having the rank and file elect leaders in wartime military units isn't such a great idea. Having volunteer formations elect their own officers, whether it be corporal or colonel, usually meant the men who were the most popular or most influential won the contest. The obvious problem with this system is that the most influential or popular men may not necessarily be up to the task of drilling and disciplining fellow volunteers or of effectively leading soldiers in combat. Now, to their credit, many of these novice rookie officers realized this, and so, in the early months of the war, it wasn't at all unusual to see small study groups of NCOs, lieutenants, captains, majors, and even colonels gathered together each night burning the midnight oil as they poured over well-thumbed copies of drill manuals, trying to stay one step ahead of their men. But of course, there were also other officers who weren't so conscientious. In the summer of 1861, a soldier in a Pennsylvania regiment complained, quote, Colonel Roberts has showed himself to be ignorant of the most simple company movements. There's a total lack of system about our regiment. Nothing is attended to at the proper time. Nobody looks ahead to tomorrow. We can only justly be called a mob and not one fit to face the enemy. End quote. On July 22nd, the day after the Union defeat at Manassas, Congress authorized the creation of military boards to examine officers and remove those found to be unqualified. Over the next few months, hundreds of officers in the Union armies were discharged or resigned voluntarily rather than face an examining board. This did not end the practice of electing officers, but it went part way toward establishing minimum standards of competence for those appointed. As the war lengthened, promotion to officers' rank on the basis of merit became increasingly the rule in veteran regiments. By 1863, the Union Army had pretty much ended the practice of electing officers. The practice of electing officers lasted longer in the southern armies. 
and nor did the Confederacy establish examining boards until October 1862. But still, in the early months of the war, when comparing the overall quality of officer talent between Union and Confederate armies, a clear edge is generally given to the South. That's because some of the most capable officers in the pre-war U.S. Army resigned their commissions and joined the Confederate Army. The South also was blessed with a superior cadre of mid-level officers who had graduated from Southern military academies, such as the Virginia Military Institute or the Citadel, and many of these men were also Mexican War veterans. At the outbreak of the Civil War, they immediately made their presence felt, providing leadership and discipline for the often unruly Southern volunteers. And so in the early months of the war, the depth of military talent and experience within the Confederate officer ranks helped the South create a viable military force within a relatively short period of time. In both the North and South, the recruitment of soldiers followed basically the same pattern. The process began at the local level. The first to rally to the flag in any community were, of course, the pre-existing militia companies. Additional companies would then be organized from the raw recruits. Once a company or regiment had been organized, it traveled to the state capital or some other point designated by the state authorities for the gathering of troops. There, single companies would be brought together with nine others to form a regiment. Each regiment would be commanded by a colonel with the assistance of a lieutenant colonel and a major, all of whom were appointed by the governor, subject in nearly all instances to the approval of the men in the regiment in an election. On paper, a company comprised a 100 soldiers. But by 1862, because of attrition due to disease, battle, and other causes, companies and veteran regiments averaged between 30 and 50 soldiers. Regiments ideally comprised 10 companies of 100 men each, so theoretically, a regiment at full established strength and commanded by a colonel would be slightly over a 1,000 strong, divided into those 10 companies with a small headquarters. But the aforementioned inevitable attrition had the effect of reducing the regiment's strength considerably. For example, at Gettysburg in July 1863, the average strength of a Confederate infantry regiment was 334, and the average strength of a Union infantry regiment was 298. According to Thomas Livermore in his study, Numbers and Losses in the American Civil War, the North raised the equivalent of 2,047 regiments during the war, of which about 1,700 were infantry and about 270 were cavalry. By comparison, the South is estimated to have raised just over 1,000 regiments. The amount of initial training that troops received from their states varied, but usually was only sufficient to provide the most rudimentary instruction and basic drill before, if they were not already there, the regiment was forwarded to the place the U.S. or Confederate government designated for the assembly of larger units. Once there, the regiment would be combined with two to five others to form a brigade, commanded by a colonel or a brigadier general. It must be said that the number of regiments in a brigade varied extensively as the war went on. 
Some brigades included as few as two regiments. Others were made up of the remains of as many as 15 regiments. Confederate brigades were more likely than those of the Union to be made up of regiments from the same state. The next largest unit was the division, commanded by a brigadier general or major general in the Union armies, and with rare exception by a major general in the Confederate armies. It wasn't unusual for Confederate divisions to include more brigades than Union divisions. In fact, the scale of the difference in size between divisions and the opposing armies is significant, as, again, using Gettysburg as an example, there, not even the largest Union division was equal to the smallest Confederate. Then on the next step up the organizational ladder, there was the Corps, composed of two or more divisions, and commanded by a brigadier general or major general in the Union armies, and a lieutenant general in the Confederate armies. In the Union army, Corps were generally given a numerical designation, for example, 3rd Corps or 5th Corps. But in the Confederate Army, although corps were given numbers, they were typically referred to by their generals' names, for example, Longstreet's Corps or Hill's Corps. The first Civil War Corps were organized in the Union Army in March 1862 by Abraham Lincoln and Major General George McClellan. The first Confederate Corps were organized later in 1862. September in the Eastern Theater, and November in the Western. And then the largest field force in the Civil War, comprising formations and units of all arms, was an army. Generally consisting of multiple corps, an army was commanded by a major general for the Union or a full general for the Confederacy. Union armies were usually named after rivers, for example, the Army of the Potomac, while Confederate armies were typically named for the geographic area in which they were based, for example, the Army of Northern Virginia, though there were exceptions on each side. Companies and regiments were the foundational building blocks of both armies, and the way that companies and regiments were raised reinforced the importance of local community in the lives of Civil War soldiers, a factor that would play as great a role as any other in motivating and sustaining them over the course of the war. Now keep in mind that most volunteers on both sides had never traveled beyond the borders of their home county, and this reflected the fact that for most Americans in the mid-19th century, their world was still the local community. And so when soldiers went to war in the spring of 1861, they did so as representatives of their local communities. Historian Reed Mitchell writes, Quote, soldiers believed that they were fighting for their families and communities. Rallies, public meetings, exhortations from the press and pulpit had encouraged the teenagers and men to enlist. Their communities presented them with homemade flags, promised always to remember their bravery, and marched them out of town. End quote. And nothing so symbolized the enduring bonds between the soldiers and the communities they came from as the flags the regiments carried to the front. The ceremonies in which units were presented with their flag were always solemn occasions for both the community and the soldiers. Patriotic oratory brought forth pledges on the part of the officers and men to protect the flag always and never bring shame or dishonor to the community. 
Such scenes go a long way toward explaining why there was seldom, if ever, a shortage of men seeking the honor of carrying the regiment's flag, despite the knowledge that in battle, serving as color bearer meant almost certain wounding or death. As we advanced towards the Dunkard Church, a rebel shell struck our flag bearer under the arms and cut him in two. I barely escaped it, being first by his side. Another of the color guard picked up the flag and had not proceeded twenty steps till he was shot, and a third man grasped the old flag, but was also shot as we advanced steadily driving the rebels back. The fourth color bearer stood bravely through the terrible hail of shell and musketry until he had moved well down the open field facing the Sharpsburg Pike and opposite the old church. Here the fourth color bearer had the calf of his leg shot away, and he handed me the flag. I unfurled it, and it was given by Major Party to my second sergeant, Robert E. Thompson, who carried it successfully throughout the remainder of the battle. Lieutenant Joseph A. Moore, 28th Pennsylvania, at the Battle of Antietam. The drilling and discipline that took place in the camps of both armies was designed to transform the volunteers into members of disciplined military formations capable of maintaining cohesion on the battlefield. The goal of maintaining cohesion was to maneuver as a unit and deliver effective fire upon the enemy. You see, Civil War armies were equipped mainly with the musket, a long-barreled, single-shot, muzzle-loading weapon whose rate of aimed fire on the battlefield was two or perhaps three shots a minute. This relatively slow rate of fire meant infantry were forced to stay in close-knit formations to allow their massed fire to be effective against the enemy. For example, listen as Rich reads this account and notice how many times during the chaos of battle this Union regiment, or portions of it, performed different tactical maneuvers as they closed with the enemy. The regiment continued moving forward into a strip of woods where the column was deployed into line of battle. The artillery fire had now increased to the roar of a hundred cannon. Solid shot and shell whistled through the trees above us, cutting off limbs which fell about us. In front of the woods there was an open field. Beyond this was a house, surrounded by peach and apple trees, a garden. The rebel skirmishers were in this cover, and they directed upon us a vigorous fire. But Company I, deployed as skirmishers, dashed across the field at a full run and drove them out, and the line of the regiment pushed on over the green open field, the air above our heads filled with the screaming missiles of the contending batteries. The right of our regiment was now on the Sharpsburg and Hagerstown turnpike. The left wing was obstructed by the picket fence around the garden before mentioned. As the right wing passed on, I ordered the men of the left wing to take hold all together and pull down the fence. They were unable to do so. I had, therefore, to pass the left wing by the flank through a gate with the utmost haste and form again in the garden. Here, Captain Edwin A. Brown of Company E was instantly killed. There is in my mind, as I write, the spectacle of a young officer with uplifted sword shouting in a loud imperative voice the order I had given him, Company E, on the right by file, into line. A bullet passed into his open mouth, and the voice is forever silent. I urged the left wing forward with all possible speed. We moved across the open space and pushed on into the cornfield. 
The three right companies of the regiment were crowded into an open field on the right-hand side of the turnpike. Thus we pushed up the hill to the middle of the cornfield. At this juncture the companies of the right wing received a deadly fire from the woods on their right. To save them, Colonel Bragg, with a quickness and coolness equal to the emergency, caused them to change front and form behind the turnpike fence, from whence they returned the fire of the enemy. Major Rufus R. Dawes, 6th Wisconsin, at the Battle of Antietam. Since the drilling and discipline that took place in the camps of both armies was designed to transform the volunteers into members of disciplined military formations capable of maintaining just that kind of cohesion on the battlefield, and since the goal of maintaining cohesion was to maneuver as a unit and deliver effective fire upon the enemy, what we want to do next is talk about the principal weapon that most infantrymen of both sides used to deliver that fire during the Civil War that is, the single-shot, muzzle-loading musket. But, since we could spend an entire episode just talking about muskets, we're going to save that topic for next time. And also next time, we'll talk about other things the Civil War infantrymen did besides shoot their muskets at the enemy. So we'll also talk about marching, life in camp between campaigns, and the constant quest to find decent stuff to eat. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is two classic Civil War books by the same author. Yep, in fact, many of you may already have these old standards on your bookshelf. They were written by Bell Irvin Wiley, and they are The Life of Johnny Reb, The Common Soldier of the Confederacy, and The Life of Billy Yank, The Common Soldier of the Union. And even though they first came out over 60 years ago... 1943 for Johnny Reb, and 1952 for Billy Yank, these are still wonderfully interesting books about the common soldiers who wore the blue and the gray. And both volumes are pretty much a must-have for any Civil War buffs library. That is, so always, you can find all of our book recommendations, uh, links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest accounts, and lots of other interesting stuff at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then we want to thank Stephen H. for his generous donation this past week. We appreciate that. And just a reminder that the lovely music we use at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by kind permission of Spiritwood Music, and we thank them for that. Uh, you can find their music on both Amazon and iTunes. Last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.